Section 9 of Miss Priscilla Hunter and My Daughter Susan by Pansy. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. My Daughter Susan, Chapter 4 Inconvenient Principles. I want to go away down on Vesey Street, said Miss Susan, directly she had dispatched her man John with a basket of dainties to tempt the sick wife. Are you equal to that journey, or shall I put you in that uptown car and send you home? I am not to be sent home, I answered promptly. I am resolved to see this day out. It is one of the most astonishing days that I ever lived. I have some queer days, she said, smiling, but this is a very quiet one. Did you see the look of disgust on the faces of those fellows when I pushed in? They expected me to be afraid, but I wasn't. I wish they had attempted violence. It would have been the salvation of John Smith. I should risk their having much influence over him after that. However, they were kind enough to insult me, and that will have a good effect. Poor John Smith. He is really very anxious about that sick wife of his. He knows that the thing she desires most on earth is to see him a reformed man. Let alone he would conquer. As it is, he needs the strength of an angel and the courage of a martyr. Isn't it an absolutely appalling thing to think of there being laws made, giving men the power to make a fiend of him and murder his wife? Sometimes that license business makes my blood just boil with rage, and at other times it is so sublimely ridiculous that I have to laugh. Once I went to a temperance lecture given by an illiterate sort of man, but he used one illustration which has clung to me ever since. He imagined a party of men standing on the shore of a dangerous stream near the rapids, engaged in saving, or trying to save, poor fellows who were whirling down the angry waters to destruction." He described the eagerness with which those on shore worked, the superhuman strength which the effort required, and the horror of the failures. Suddenly it occurred to some man wiser than the rest to rush upstream and see what all this meant, why so many men were being thrown down towards the rapids. Behold, up on the bridge stood a man who was pitching them in, one after the other, with the most composed and decorous air imaginable. "'See here,' called the other, "'stop that. What are you about? Don't you know enough to know that men are being drowned down here in the rapids? They have gone over dozens of them. We couldn't save them. Are you mad? Stop, I say.' "'I won't,' said the man in calm reply. "'My friend, I've got a license. I can make money at this business.' If I didn't work at it, someone else would. I might as well have the money as anyone. I'm licensed according to law. You have no right to stop me. And in went a man. Now, of course, a critic would say that the cases were not parallel, that illustration was far-fetched, and all that sort of thing. I don't care how far it was fetched. It sometimes seems to me that a few of us are just standing down by the rapids, trying to save a man here and there, while the law is at work licensing men to stand on the bridge and pitch them in. How I wish I could vote! What good would it do? The women would all vote just as their husbands do, 
and what would be gained now my dear madam you are always to remember that some of us haven't husbands we at least could be supposed to have minds of our own but what does that argument amount to there is my father who votes the no license ticket with all his strength if women could vote there would be my mother and my sister alice and myself to make his vote count for now suppose for a moment that he voted for license if you can suppose so impossible and absurd a thing don't you think you see my mother and my mother's daughters doing it well but said i there is joe baker who lives down the lane from our house he has a wife and four daughters and he votes for license and drinks all the liquor he can get and do you imagine that they would cast five votes on his side let me tell you you don't know them if you think so i do and i know that they would lie down and die in the attempt to reach the poles if need be and feel that they had not lived in vain if they had cast five votes for freedom from their life curse no ma'am those who profess that the drunkards wives and sisters and mothers and daughters would vote to have rum sold show plainly that they don't know what they are talking about there are doubtless a few miserable exceptions women whom rum has so degraded that they have lost their womanhood but the masses if you want to know how they would vote visit them as i do and hear them talk and pray do you believe that women ever will vote i asked her branching from the argument at hand with the suddenness of a politician who had been worsted oh i don't know if we could have some new laws made by which women have the right to vote on such vital subjects as these and yet not be voted for not be eligible to office you know isn't that the word for to most of the offices neither nature nor culture leads them i should like to vote but if i've got to be made a senator of or an assemblyman woman of or submit to any of those degradations why i'm afraid i should want to wait a while so far as the mere act of voting is concerned i think an immense amount of twaddle has been written and spoken concerning it i know some dainty little bits of flesh and blood and silk and velvet who lisp out that they wouldn't vote for the world it would be stepping out of their sphere though immodest you know and degrading calculated to destroy all the scent of delicacy and refinement and those same creations of refinement will dance half the night with men whom i won't recognize on the street i can conceive of more immodest things than the slipping of a bit of paper into a box this is vesey street i want to go into mr selmser's office mr selmser she said the moment she caught sight of that dignified-looking gentleman have you any vacant places for workmen mr selmser thought not well now you ought to have are you employing temperance men have they all signed the pledge well really as to that mr selmser did not know there were no drunkards among his workmen he never submitted to that but whether they were pledge signers was extremely doubtful the truth was he didn't believe he had ever inquired and you a president of a temperance society said miss susan 
with just a touch of dignified surprise in her voice. Mr. Selmser, this thing needs looking after. The liquor party can afford to provide work for their men. They can afford, it seems, to buy their influence and their time and their souls by promising steady employment and good wages. Now the question is, what are we on our side about? Here is John Smith, actually thrown out of employment because he has signed the pledge, and a chance for several others to be served in the same way. Are we going to stand that? Well now, Miss Susan, what can we do about it? Do about it? Why, see that they have work, of course. Is there nothing in this city that ought to be done? No public improvements that would furnish work and be a blessing to the people? I've passed at least three streets today that need to have rows of old buildings pulled down and decent ones put up. The hovels in which those people on Clark Street are living are a disgrace to the city, and the park needs work done in it, and there are miles of road that need repairing. Why, of course, all these things cost money, and so do poor houses and orphan asylums and prisons. To this rush of earnest words, Mr. Selmser listened in a sort of embarrassed silence, and I could not help wondering whether Miss Susan knew, and whether he remembered, that most of the hovels on Clark Street were owned by himself. Presently he rallied. Well, but Miss Susan, there are so few of the people having the means who feel that way. We couldn't do one hundredth part of what needs to be done if we attempted it then we clearly should not be responsible for the one-hundredth part, should we? But simply for the part that we could do. God will not call me to account for your undone work, Mr. Selmser, only my own. This could not have been a new idea to Mr. Selmser, yet he seemed struck with it, and I was not surprised to hear several weeks thereafter that a regular system had been put in operation whereby any honest, unemployed man, who was a signer of a total abstinence pledge, could find employment and fair wages by applying to one of ten men, located at convenient portions of the city. The immediate result of this conversation was, that John Smith went to work the next morning at seven o'clock. "'We will have some lunch now,' said Miss Susan, as we turned from Mr. Selmser's office." we are not likely to get home until after the dinner hour. Very well, I said. We are quite near a good place. Just around the corner on Mason Street is a restaurant where I occasionally lunch. I find very good accommodations. You can't mean the Mason parlors. I detected surprise not unmingled with indignation in the voice of my young friend, in spite of which I was obliged to meekly admit that I did mean the mason parlors. Excuse me, she said decidedly, but I can't lunch there. Of course, you do not know that the back room belongs to them, and that they retail wines and beer, and indeed anything in that line which is called for. They get no custom from me. But can you find a restaurant where something of that sort isn't sold? Yes'm, one at least several for that matter, but the one nearest to us is on Lincoln Street. Not a very stylish place. The fact is, they can't afford to be stylish because they are not supported by rum, 
and because temperance people do not go out of their way to patronize them. But things are clean and neat. Isn't it nearly half a mile away? I asked, still speaking meekly, for I was getting some new ideas. Yes'm, it is, but the streetcar that we can take at the corner passes their door. Five cents and fifteen minutes will take us there. It isn't so convenient as the mason parlors, you see. I think we often find principles inconvenient, don't you? To this question I made a sort of muttering reply, for I began to be dimly conscious that hitherto my principles had not been so inconvenient as they ought to have been. On two other occasions during that memorable day did I venture to offer advice with unexpected results. As we were hastening from one line of cars to another, I espied the sign, Burke's Oyster Depot. Aware that he kept the best oysters in the city, I asked, Are you mindful of your mother's commission about oysters? Here is Burke's. We never buy at Burke's, she answered promptly. He is a liquor dealer, you know, as well as an oyster dealer. I am ever so sorry, for I like his oysters better than any that we find, which is another wise thing that our temperance grocers submit to. The idea of letting a liquor dealer keep the best oysters in town. Sometimes it really seems to me that the brains of the city are in Satan's hands, and he certainly knows how to manage them. I said nothing in reply, for the reason that my eye had caught sight of some unusually fine-looking oranges. There, I said, you were looking for nice oranges. You will see none nicer than those, I am sure. Miss Susan stopped short in the street, and gave me a curious, troubled look for a moment. Then she laughed outright. Are you in that last-named person's employ today, my dear madame? she asked, or is it pure accident that you continually direct my attention to restaurants, oyster depots, groceries, etc., where the main article of dependence is rum? Is that a rum establishment, too? I asked in surprise. How do you find those things out? They have no sign. I never even thought of it before." which is precisely the difficulty with two-thirds of our temperance men and women, she answered with kindling eyes. They don't think, and indeed, many of them won't think. It is not pure thoughtlessness in all cases either. It is, well, what shall I call it? It looks wonderfully like indifference. It is more convenient to trade at a rumseller's, or he keeps better articles, or he is second cousin to someone's brother's uncle's cousin's friend. Some reason can be found why it is best to patronize him in spite of his want of principle. Indeed, I meet with not a few women who do not descend to particulars, but content themselves with that favorite argument among a certain class of Americans, fiddlesticks, and in some respects it is really the most unanswerable argument that can be offered because, after you have given what you consider to be an earnest and practical reason on the other side, what can you say to a woman who tosses her head and curls up her nose and answers, fiddlesticks? I tell you, dear friend, 
it is a matter of great encouragement that the temperance cause has made the advances which it has, when you think of the namby-pambyism of one-third of its nominal advocates. End of section 9